Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pilucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today we are pleased to feature a guest. Mario Livio is an astrophysicist at the Space Telescopic Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. He is also a popular lecturer and the best-selling author of several books, including The Accelerating Universe and The Golden Ratio, The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved and most recently a book called Brilliant Blunders, From Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes by Great Scientists That Changed Our Understanding of Life in the Universe. And that's what we are going to focus on in our discussion today. Mario, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I bet that our readers, uh, listeners rather, would be <laughs> particularly interested to hear what you think Darwin's blunder was in uh, formulating his theory of uh, natural selection, um, because I, at least, was very surprised when I saw in the blurb about your book that you thought Darwin made an error. Yeah, well, it's, it's not just that I thought, <laughs> thought that. He really made an error. Uh, yes, but, right. that's uh, fair. So, uh, I, after reading it, I, I found that that was an objectively fair interpretation, but uh, if you could lay it out. Yes, yeah, so, so basically, I mean... Uh, at Darwin's time, uh, they didn't know much about genetics. And of course, we cannot blame Darwin for that. Nobody knew about genetics at the time. Uh, the problem was, and this is where he, he made a blunder, was that what he, he didn't realize that with the theory of uh, heredity that existed at the time, uh, natural selection simply would not have worked at all. Um, and I can explain, you know, how that works uh, if you want to hear it right now or if you want to ask about it later. Now, let's, let's go on for, for, uh, for a bit about uh, the theory of inheritance, because that's actually, um, it's, a, it's an interesting, fascinating story that, that eventually went on for several decades, actually, after, after Darwin's the, blunder. So let's, right. let's, uh, let's go on with Darwin and... and uh, right, so the theory of heredity that existed at the time was uh, that the characteristics of the mother and the father, they get mixed in the offspring in the same way as you would mix paints or if you, you would mix gin and tonic. Um, I like so, that analogy yeah. better, yes. I looked over at Massimo's face and saw it perk up <laughs> after your second example. <laughs> yes. So the thing is that, you know, if that were the case, and of course Darwin, you know, accepted that because that was the, the prevailing theory at the time. But if that were the case, then, you know, imagine now, you know, that uh, you have a, a certain characteristic. Let's say that uh, being... Uh, green, uh, you know, confers some advantage to, to a butterfly or whatever. And you take one green butterfly into a population of uh, a million red butterflies. And now this one green butterfly mates with a, the one of these red butterflies. And what you get is you mix like paint. So green and red, you would get something like brown, maybe. So already in the first generation, there is no green, really. And, and further, you, when you, the farther you go, 
like with the gin and tonic, if you know, if you keep pouring tonic into it, at the end there will be no gin. Uh, so clearly, there is no way that that particular characteristic that was supposed to be advantageous and passed on to the next generation would not work. So natural selection would not have worked. So uh, you know, of course, this got corrected after you know Gregor Mendel. Uh, proposed his ideas about genetics, which took a few decades for it to be accepted because, you know, his paper was initially ignored. Uh, but the idea is that really the way that genetics works is really more like shuffling two decks of cards than like mixing paints in the sense that, you, you know, if you have a jack in your hand and a jack somehow is a good thing to have, no matter how much you will shuffle the, the decks, you will still have the jack. Uh, and that's the way genes work and not like mixing of paints. Now, so, you, you make the point in, in that um, uh, there's this uh, rumor or legend or however you want to call it that Darwin actually had a copy of Mendel's uh, paper or maybe of a book about Mendel, but it turns out that he did not have, you, you actually looked into it, right? And that, um, that's right. Darwin, yeah, yeah, Darwin I, did not have the paper. Yeah, I did, I did look into it and even before me, somebody from the Darwin Project looked into it because there have been no fewer than four books that claimed that, uh, you see, in later times, Darwin did, uh, stated, did state a few things which sounded more like Mendelian genetics. You know, he, in particular, uh, he said in one place that he, he thinks that maybe it will turn out at the end that heredity is more like mixing and not like true fusion and, and expressions like this. So people raised the suspicion, well, maybe he said that because he actually read Mendel's paper. So first of all, it turned out that he, never, he didn't have Mendel's paper. That was not in his possession, you know, at the time he died. Um, it was published uh, in a very obscure journal, after all. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a rather obscure journal to which he was not uh, subscribed. Uh, but surely but someone some must have raised this objection to him, no? Uh, you mean the, the, about blended in areas? Yeah, surely someone else have said, hey, Darwin, your theory can oh, yeah, be true that, because... That pointed out by an engineer named Fleming Jenkins. Yeah, uh, Darwin was very weak in mathematics, so, um, <laughs> but, but this engineer, he knew mathematics. So he, he, he you know, gave very good examples to show, you know, like the gin and tonic, which I used basically, to say why the whole thing will be swamped and, you know, you would not see, you know, one of these single variations would not exhibit itself in any later generations. Yeah, I feel like you don't have to be good at math to recognize the problem there. You just have to be good at drinking. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe Darwin could have used a little more drinking. Now, he did have, however, um, a copy of a book that talked about Mendel, but, but That's he right. said he, he didn't did actually get to read it. He did have a copy of a book that talked about Mendel, but uh, what, what you know, I discovered, and uh, actually I, put a, I, I was so impressed by this that I asked the people at Cambridge to take a picture of it and to give it to me, and I put it in the book is that he actually never cut the pages of that book where the Mendel experiment was mentioned. Right. Uh, so he never really read that book. Plus, actually, had he read that book, uh, he really would not have been illuminated much because the person who wrote that book, Foke, uh, did not himself understand the meaning of Mendel's experiment. So he really talked about this very briefly, and uh, it was clear that he didn't understand what was the real uh, import of those results. And in fact, I, I would add that um, uh, even had um, Darwin had actually the paper and read it, you know, correctly and all that, understood it, 
uh, that might still not have been enough because um, as, as it turns out, the history of biology after that, after the rediscovery of Mendel's uh, work in, uh, in 1900, is still pretty long and complicated. I mean, it took another two or three decades actually for people like statistical geneticists like Fisher to figure out how to reconcile Mendelism and Darwinism because the first reaction actually the biologists had after the rediscovery of Mendel's laws is contradictory. Were, yeah, they were contradictory of, of right. natural selection. Um, right. And so because right. in, in some sense for some, kind of the opposite reason that, that, uh, of your example with the, with the blended, uh, blending of the, you know, diluting of the gin, that is uh, the, the Mendelians were basically arguing that look, if genes are these discrete things that get past generation to generation, uh, then there's not much that natural selection can do. It's, it's mutation that actually brings up the, the, you know, the new materials. So these people were also referred to as mutationists um, and not natural selection. So natural selection at best can eliminate the, the bad stuff. You cannot actually build anything. And, uh, and it took actually you know, Fisher and a couple of other brilliant mathematical geneticists to actually put the whole thing together and reconcile That's right. it. To- That's right. Only after the, the, the theory of uh, population genetics was developed mathematically, then uh, indeed, then, then this was understood that actually uh, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection and Mendelian genetics actually need each other and they work together. Yeah, just uh, about the takeaways that we should get from this case study of a blunder in the progress of science. Is, would you say that the takeaway here is that it's, it's useful for the progress of science that people like Darwin sometimes uh, you know, don't notice that their new theory, their new idea contradicts pre-existing beliefs? Um, because if they did, then they would just sort of give up and not, <clears throat> not put forth the new idea. Um, <clears throat> and you know, often it's the case that the pre-existing theories are actually wrong. Or maybe, uh, or maybe the, the take is take out the, the take on message is simply that people should learn a little more mathematics or, or drink more gin. Perhaps well, that was certainly true in in Darwin's case. I mean, he was very weak on mathematics, but you know, he was a genius nonetheless. Uh, and uh, you know, he formulated what is probably the most beautiful non-mathematical theory that we actually have. Um, yeah, no, but there is a. There is a lesson here. I mean, well, there are many lessons really to be learned here, but uh, one of them is, and and that's a lesson from the entire book, really, that uh, in many cases, the progress of science, you know, it's it's really not some sort of a direct march to the truth, uh, if you like, but it really has to go through this zigzag way where, uh, you know, Darwin himself, when faced with that problem, he tried to correct it, he came up with a wrong theory for this and so on. Uh, and then it took this time to, for people to digest uh, what Mendel's theory means, you know, and so on. Uh, so, so this is how progress is actually made. I mean, uh, by encountering the blunder, people became aware of the fact that something needs to be corrected here if the rest of it looks right. Uh, and this is what happened. Now, I, I want to jump to a second, uh, another one of your examples in the book, which is actually a contemporary of Darwin, Lord Kelvin. Um, the story there is interesting too, and I, I'd like you to tell the story uh, briefly. But, but one of the, thing, the reasons it interests me is because in that case, Darwin actually had a problem with what turned out to be uh, Kelvin's um, you know, blunder, Kelvin's mistake. Um, because it, it, do, it too, Kelvin, Kelvin's ideas too, contradicted uh, the theory of natural selection. But in this case, it turns out Darwin was actually right. So can you tell the story? Yes. So, so Lord Kelvin, you know, he, he definitely was a genius. I mean, he was a man of, uh, unlike Darwin, he was a person who knew mathematics perfectly. 
uh, and uh, he was also probably the most eminent physicist of his time. Uh, he also did lots of things in engineering and so on. Uh, so he did the first genuine calculation based on physics for the age of the Earth. Um, you know, before that, uh, people were taking all kinds of crazy numbers for the age of the Earth. Uh, and he was the first person to try to actually use the real laws of physics, in that particular case, laws of thermodynamics, to actually calculate the age of the Earth. And the way he did this was a little bit like, you know, like in forensics today, when they find the corpse and from the temperature of the body, they try to determine the time of death. Um, so it, it was a bit like that. I mean, the assumption was that the Earth was formed molten and very, very hot. And it was basically losing its, its heat into space. Um, and so by measuring uh, the rate at which the temperature in the Earth changes with depth, uh, Kelvin thought that he could actually determine the age of the Earth. And he determined the number, which was about 100 million years, uh, which is, we know today, you know, by about a factor of 50 too short. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. And... 100 million years definitely looked very, very short for Darwin's evolution to take place. And in fact, Darwin had, uh, you know, had serious doubts about, I mean, as you pointed out, he couldn't challenge Kelvin on, on the calculations, uh, but, he, but he, he, he was convinced that there was something, must have been something wrong with it. And it turns out that it, it took a few, several years actually to figure out um, my understanding is that one of the one of the, the problems with Kelvin's original estimate. I mean, you, you go into some details in the book, but it's also that there was really no. Um, uh, that, does it have to do with the fact that, for instance, nobody knew anything about you know nuclear uh, fusion in stars? So that, for instance, it was inconceivable that a star like the Sun could last that, that long. Uh, that was a problem because because they didn't know about nuclear fusion in stars. Kelvin actually did a separate calculation about the age of the sun. Uh, and there he assumed that the only source of energy that was available was gravitational, namely that the sun was kind of slowly contracting and it was releasing as heat its gravitational energy. And from that, he got an age which was in the same ballpark as the 100 million years. And that actually seemed to validate his, his calculation for the age of the earth. And it is true that for as long as people did not know what to do about the sun, it was definitely difficult to convince Kelvin, at least, that his calculation of the age of the Earth was wrong. Right. Yeah, it makes sense when you, when you have two different uh, you know pieces of information that sort of point in the same direction. It's very reasonable to draw that conclusion. One of the things that I like about that story um, is actually that that uh, Darwin's son wrote eventually later on, at the beginning of the 20th century, a paper um, essentially. Uh, defending his father's ideas uh, based on the fact, of course, that by that point, radioactivity had been discovered. So based on the fact that the physics was was beginning to sort of re revi revisit the whole idea of, of the source of energy for the four stars and so on. Co correct. R radioactivity at least was identified as a source for heating the Earth. Um, you know, they right. thought that maybe it could also, you know, heat the sun, but of course, Which is not the case, right? it turned out not to be the source of energy for the sun. Right. Mario, in scanning the history of blunders in scientific progress, did you notice any patterns as to why scientists make blunders? Or was it just a different story each time? Uh, they, are, they are different. And at some level, I even chose them to be somewhat different. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, in the case of uh, Kelvin, it turned out that it was something that he, he kind of thought that he can think of all the possibilities. And he didn't take into account that there are always some 
possibilities that you know are not foreseen. Uh, so, so that was uh, in in his case. Uh, in the case of Linus Pauling, who is another person that I discussed, you know, it was more hubris or you know uh, overconfidence uh, based on uh, his previous uh, incredible successes and so on. Uh, in the case of Einstein, who is another person I discussed, uh, it was perhaps uh, some sort of a misunderstanding of what elegance in in theories in, in of physics really means. Uh, in kind of he thought that the elegance must manifest itself even in the form of the equation, and when in fact, I mean, the elegance really appears in the principles involved, mm. and not in how the equation looks on paper. But so actually. Seems to me that three. I mean, that, that Julia's question is a good one. I think that that it, that one way to look at uh, the examples you pick, and of course, this this um, you picked five examples as you as you pointed out, um, because they are very well understood and and they're very different from each other. And yet, at least three of those people actually do seem to me to fall under the category of uh, hubris or too much self confidence. I mean, I would put there uh, uh, Kelvin, who who you point out refused for a long time then to admit that he was that he was wrong, even though the evidence was beginning to accumulate. The same goes for Fred Oil and 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 the story of the Big Bang, and and of course Linus Pauling. So at least three of these people, I think, do have in common the fact that they were so brilliant and and clearly so accomplished that they just couldn't conceive that they could possibly be wrong. Uh, you're right, but but there was differences. You know, in the case, uh, for example, of Fred Hoyle, there was it's it's really was a case of denial in some sense. Uh, in the case of uh, let's, let's go over yeah. the story because yeah, Fred Hoyle is an interesting yeah. story. Yeah, let me just only complete that. In the case of Pauling, he actually admitted that he was wrong. You know, okay. so 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 there, there there was a difference there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Fred Hoyle. Well, let me start by saying that Fred Hoyle was a brilliant man. I mean, he was no doubt a genius, and he was. Uh, certainly one of the best astrophysicists and cosmologists of, of the 20th century. Now, uh, having said that, uh, he, he came up with this extraordinarily elegant idea of a steady-state model for the universe. Uh, the reason I say it's so elegant, you see, we, we say in cosmology, we have what is called the cosmological principle, that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, which means it's the same everywhere and the same in every direction that we look. Well, Fred Hoyle added to that and said, and you know what? And it's also the same at every time. It was always the same and it will always stay the same. I mean, this So is not just in space, but also in time. That's right. So it's, it's a fantastic idea. And not only that, it kind of also fits nicely with our idea that maybe the laws of physics themselves don't change. Well, you know, if the laws of physics don't change, then maybe the universe doesn't change either, you know, and so on. So the idea was, was, was really beautiful, a beautiful idea. Uh, the problem was that as evidence started accumulating that the universe is actually evolving and actually started from a Big Bang, uh, he really refused actually till his last day to accept uh, that uh, model, you know, the Big Bang model. And uh, he, because he was brilliant, he continued to invent all kinds of ways, you know, how he could explain the, the amassing evidence in different ways, but still keeping a, so, some sort of a quasi-steady state model for the universe. So he stepped from a, a rational approach to the, to the problem to a rationalizing approach to the problem, right? That, that it, right, was, right. it was so brilliant that he could come up with excuses, basically, one after another. That's right. Even, even when actually nobody was, uh, you know, believing those excuses anymore. Uh, 
Mario, you've probably encountered the, uh, I think Michael Shermer was the one who popularized this point about how it is that very smart people can believe and continue to believe such uh, absurd things, even in the face of mounting disconfirmatory evidence. Um, and it's very much like your, the story, story of Hoyle suggests that very smart people are uh, all the more able to come up with reasons why uh, what seems like an absurdly wrong belief is actually correct and uh, you know, all the more able to find uh, potential flaws in their opponent's arguments. You're right. I mean, they also, you know, after being right many times, they almost become addicted to being right. Uh, and, and they have a hard time, you know, accepting when they actually are wrong. Uh, I, I mentioned in the book that there, there was a famous physicist, Max Planck, uh, right. who wrote once that uh, when new ideas are being finally accepted, it's not because, you know, the old physicists accept them. He said the old physicists simply die, and it's the new generation that was already grew up with the new ideas. They accept the ideas. Although I have to mention that I was uh, heartwarmed to notice a, a counterexample in in your book also of uh, actually a philosopher, uh, Karl Popper in this case, who uh, accepted that he was wrong quite right. quite graciously. Um, right. He had been, uh, I guess, he'd been arguing that the theory of natural selection was sort of tautological and didn't actually. Um, didn't actually, you know, limit the space of possible ways the world could be. And right, he, he, he referred to it as a metaphysical research program as opposed to a scientific theory. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so he did end up, as you said, recognizing his error in later years. And he wrote, "I have changed my mind about the testability and the logical status of natural selection, and I am glad to have the opportunity to make a recantation." Which right. I highlighted so that I could save it. Yeah, later. so yeah, th th this this was indeed very nice, and and I also noted that Pauling himself admitted that he was wrong. I mean, so not everybody, uh, you know, continued to hold the, the 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 idea that they were right till till the end. Now, the funny thing about uh, the the Popper uh, instance is, uh, of course, that um, Popper's criticism of natural selection as a theory uh, is widely cited by creationists, and his recantation yeah. is not. For, for reasons that I think had to do with in malicious intelligent design. But anyway, um, now, another one of the things that seems, however, to run a little bit through some of the examples, certainly, certainly not all, but some of the examples that you bring in <clears throat> in the book, is this idea that um, people who commit sort of big blunders, you, you, you say that you're interested in the big blunders, the blunders that, that make a difference in the history of science. And it's a certain number of those people seem to be uh, the kind of scientist that is not afraid of, of espousing iconoclastic ideas, you know, unpopular ideas. And right. in fact, Fred Oil himself is a very good example. I mean, later on in his very late in his career, uh, toward the end of his career, he actually also attacked the theory of evolution. It seems to be the, sort of the favorite hobby of uh, iconoclastic scientists and philosophers for that matter. Um, and, you know, he did it on the basis of what he thought was sound mathematical um, uh, reasoning. Basically, he, he attempted a calculation of the probability of the evolution of a DNA molecule and, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, and as far as I actually looked into it, I, I, I reviewed the book that he wrote about this thing. And as far as I can tell, the calculation was correct. The problem is that the assumptions that went into the calculation was, were completely off. And I suspect that was because he just did not get enough, you know, did not take the, 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 the biology seriously, essentially. You, you really, there is no way you can do a, cal a meaningful calculation of that sort because we don't know enough about the early stages of evolution of replicating systems. You know, we don't, we don't know how often certain conditions uh, uh, took place and so on and so forth. But it's interesting that, you know, he was not afraid of that. And he, he made very clear that he didn't consider himself a creationist or an intelligent design supporter or anything like that, even though, of course, 
those people claimed him immediately. Um, but he was simply not afraid of going out there and saying, here's what I think, and I don't, I don't care if the rest of the universe doesn't seem to agree. Uh, eventually, they'll see uh, you know, the light. Yeah, that's, that's right. That was absolutely typical of Hoyle. I mean, Hoyle, you know, from day one, basically said that, you know, good scientists, they go against the mainstream. They, you know, that there is no point in agreeing with everybody, you know, and so on. Now, he t- took that to a fault, you know, this particular <laughs> right. recommendation. And he, you know, decided almost to go against the mainstream with almost everything he did. Uh, and in some cases, you know, he was successful. In others, uh, much less so. Uh, there is also, you know, I... In the book, I tried to discuss a little bit, uh, you know, the reasons that he might have done some of this at, at, at the end of his life and so on. And th- there is this point, which I think is an interesting one, which is when you have some really great scientists who have done fantastic work at, at some point in their life, and then, you know, they reach the end of their career and they find it really completely boring and uninteresting to just continue to do some incremental science. So instead, what happens is they choose on some completely different topic and they try to come up with some completely new idea on that topic, even if they are actually not experts in that particular field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in the case of Pauling, I mean, vitamin C comes to mind, yes? Right. Which he turned into, a, into an obsession um, and, and so on. So... Uh, you see this trait as well in some of these people, you know, where they try to make yet another big thing instead of, you know, satisfying themselves with what they have already done and, you know, just go on and do some, you know, good but incremental science. And sometimes that strategy actually works even for young scientists. I mean, after all, both Watson and Crick, uh, the discoverers and, and, uh, of the double helix structure DNA and direct competitors with, uh, with polling, they were also coming actually from very different fields. I mean, uh, phys- uh, sorry, uh, Crick was a physicist and, um, and uh, Watson was an ornithologist. So it, they, neither one of them had much knowledge about molecular biology, crystallography and things like that. And yet they obviously uh, made a right move in terms of career, <laughs> clearly. But yeah, Crick but- tried it again later, for instance, in his career. He moved to uh, studies of the brain. And right. even though he did write, write several technical papers in that field, I, I'm not aware that he made any actual uh, breakthrough in, in that particular field. So. No, yeah, but he did all kinds of good work. I mean, the, the Watson and Crick, you know, had the advantage of being young and that having yeah. seen how polling pollings w- works. Right. So they basically imitated his his way of work. Um, uh, only that, you know, they actually did it better than him because he, you know, more or less spent spent one month uh, thinking of DNA while they decided to make that their life's mission. Mario, in the coda to Brilliant Blunders, you bring up uh, just briefly some of the literature on heuristics and biases and the way that human intuition can lead us astray. And, and this is sort of in the context of explaining how it is that scientists like you know, Darwin or Pauling or Einstein um, could end up making mistakes, uh, that they had this trust, as we all do in our, you know, intuitively in our intuition, um, that our intuition would guide them to the correct answer. And... So I, I thought this was an interesting point because it does seem like intuition is pretty uh, indispensable to scientific discovery. So it certainly doesn't seem, and I don't think you were claiming this, it doesn't seem like a very simple, you know, scientists make mistakes because they rely on their intuition. Um, do you have any thoughts about like what the right role is of intuition in the scientific progress? Is there, is there anything that we can 
say about I, no, I'm, I'm really not practice. sure that there is a rule. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I look in, you know, and people, for example, in the field of astrophysics, you know, there were two astrophysicists, one named Eddington and one named Jeans, who lived around the same time, uh, a little bit uh, before Hoyle. Uh, they were both brilliant mathematically, uh, and yet, and they both made important contributions, but Eddington's contribution far exceeded those of Jeans. And when you actually look more carefully at what happened there, you almost always see that when they were on opposite sides with their ideas about something, somehow Eddington always turned out to be right hmm. and, and genes to be wrong. And when this happens once, you say, well, okay, it can happen. Even twice, okay, it can happen. When it happens time and again, you start to think, well, maybe there is some lack of insight here, you know, and so on. Uh, and but it's hard to tell, you know, what is it that gives you know one person this insight? Einstein, of course, is the perfect example of right. of just profound, you know, insights uh, that uh, you know. I, 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 special relativity was in the air, you know. Had Einstein not done it, somebody else would have had. Uh, you know, Henri Poincaré was very close to actually formulating similar ideas and, and so on. But general relativity was really hardly in the air at all when Einstein did it. You know, and it is still amazing. How did he come up with that insight? To follow up with uh, on Julia's question, in um, classical philosophy of science, meaning uh, mid to twenty to middle part of the 20th century, let's say, um, people were making a, a pretty sharp distinction. These days, the distinction is still holds, but it's a little less sharp, between the context of discovery and the context of justification. The idea was that the context of discoveries is it how it answers the question of how is it that science actually come up with new ideas. And the context of justification uh, deals with the question of, well, once you have the idea, you know, what, what are the, the logical and empirically based methods by which you actually test those ideas? And um, Popper, for instance, um, um, presented this, this simple schema according to which the job of the philosopher is really to, to, to uh, look at, at the second question, the, the context of justification. There's always it that scientists, once that they have that, that, uh, their ideas, actually go about justify them in a, in a rational way. But the, the context of discovery, according to Popper, is really the province of psychology because it has to do with human intuitions and with you know, uh, um, uh, unconscious processing of you know, loads of information and, and, and these, these ideas that, that um, new ideas come up uh, out of nowhere seemingly. I mean, surely they come up out of somewhere, but they come up out of nowhere and under very different circumstances. You know, you, the typical example, you go and take a shower and all of a sudden you come out and you know, the idea strikes you. It's not that, that taking a shower, you know, therefore you should take more showers and have more ideas. Um, but, the, but, but the thing is... It, Although it is a, taking showers, it's not a bad it's idea. It's not a bad idea in general, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the idea is that, that um, you know, the context of discovery, it really is, it, it is at the roots, goes at the roots of, of um, human psychology and how is it that we formulate, um, you know, new, new thoughts and new ideas. And it's, there is not much you can do there in terms of uh, sort of philosophizing about it or, or thinking about it rationally. It just happens in certain ways. Now, that said, there are cer certain um, regularities. Uh, one of the ones that, that struck me uh, was a study a few years ago that showed that the major predictor of, of um, successful, a successful science career, um, you know, and they looked at a bunch of possible statistical predictors, the major predictor by far was simply the sheer number of published papers. 
And the basic idea was, therefore, that a major difference between a successful scientific career and a non-successful scientific career is not necessarily that the successful scientists have better you know, idea more often. It's just that they produce a lot more. They keep shooting at the targets, and eventually they're going to hit something. And scientists that are much more conservative about publishing, they may be just as brilliant and just as insightful, but you know, if you only shoot once in a while, and the probability is about the same of hitting the target, uh, you're not going to hit it. And it's I, you know I don't it would be nice to sort of replicate that study and then see how what actually uh, you know what the dynamics is but it's uh, it's one of those things that that show you that there are regularities but not necessarily the ones you would predict right right at the same time you know I would point out that you know Einstein did not write a huge number of papers but right. somehow every single one of those counts so uh, Mario in what way do you think that Einstein's intuitions about uh, the beauty of scientific principles led him astray? So, you see, the, the main idea of, of uh, general relativity was that, that gravity is not this mysterious force that acts across, you know, the vast distances of space, but that gravity really represents a, a curvature or a warping of space-time. That if you have a mass, in the same way that, you know, if I stand on a trampoline, I cause it to sag, then a mass causes space-time, it's in vicinity, to warp. And then, you know, like, for example, the sun does that. And then the planets basically move in the shortest paths in that curved space-time. Um, so this was an incredible idea and an incredible intuition. Uh, now, when he tried to apply this theory to the universe at large, uh, he thought that at the time that the universe was static, that everything was static. So he realized that there is a problem because if there is a gravity, you know, between every all, all the bodies there, then the universe was going to collapse under its own weight. So he basically said, oh, well, in that case, I need to introduce a term that will exactly balance gravity everywhere. Now, he introduced that term as some sort of an additive term, you know, with a plus sign between mm -hmm. that and, 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 and the other term in his equation. And he was happy for a sh very short while <laughs> that he could create a sort of a static universe. Now, when it was discovered at the end of the 1920s that the universe is actually expanding, he said, well, wait a minute. If, if the universe is expanding, I don't need to balance everything everywhere. I mean, what gravity would do, it would simply slow down the expansion. And he removed that term from his equation because he didn't like it particularly from the beginning because he felt it was added kind of, you know, we don't like const new constants being added with a plus sign, you know, and so on. This It's kind of a kludge. The, the thing, yeah, well, like a fudge factor, yeah. you know, and so. The, the thing was that general relativity actually allowed the introduction of that term into the equation. And so it wasn't violating the beauty of the theory in terms of its basic principle. It was just violating in his eyes the beauty of the form of the equation. So he removed that. Now, in 1998, we discovered that the expansion of the universe is, in fact, speeding up. It's accelerating. Yeah, I still what? haven't gotten over that one. You know. and, and, and guess what? You know, it appears to be propelled precisely by that term, by that cosmological <laughs> constant that Einstein removed from his equation. So had he stuck with his original intuition in this case, you know, and with the fact that the theory allowed for that term to be in, he could have actually predicted the acceleration of the universe. And, but instead, you know, he removed it 
when in fact the term was allowed by, by the equations. We have since then learned time and again that the way physics works more or less is that every term that is allowed is, is basically compulsory, probably needs to be there. But in general, isn't adding a fudge factor when your equation doesn't balance out, isn't that in general a sign that you've done something wrong somewhere on, along the line? Yes, but when spoken like this is a fudge factor, but you see... It, <laughs> it, it, you were loading the guys there. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't things, notice that. To add things into general relativity while keep this incredible principle that the laws of physics should look the same to every observer, whatever the observer does, you know, and so on, is not easy. I mean, there are only certain ways that that can be done. And the way that he added that constant was one of those ways where it could be done. So it really wasn't in that sense a fudge factor. Well, Mario, we are just running out of time for this section of the podcast. So let's uh, wrap things up and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Um, every episode, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Mario Livio, for his suggestion. Mario? Yes. So, uh, you know, a book that, uh, given that my book is called Brilliant Blunders and it's about blunders, uh, I thought that I would recommend a book that's called Being Wrong, <laughs> Adventures in the Margin of Error by Catherine Schultz. Um, it's a wonderful book, I thought, um, that uh, really talks about this thing that, you know, we are, we are so afraid of being wrong that, you know, it sometimes, uh, in a way, prevents us from doing things. And she, she's basically calling on, uh, you know, embracing uh, this feeling of, you know, not to be afraid of being wrong. Um, this fits actually very nicely with, with the point I, I was trying to make, and, and that is the following, that Sometimes, you know, to get really breakthroughs, uh, you, you need to think outside the box. You need to think unconventionally and in, in, in some sort of innovative ways. And, but when you do that, uh, there is a risk you're taking of, of actually being wrong. Um, but you must realize that, uh, you know, this is part of how the game is being played. Now, I, I want again to emphasize the fact that I'm not advocating being sloppy. That's not... <laughs> I mean, it's not that you should be careless. You should do very careful science and thinking and everything you know and so on. But to realize that sometimes really discoveries come from this, uh, you know, against the mainstream kind of thinking. In mathematical terms, you know, if you are stuck in, in some minimum, you know, in some, in, in some hole, you know, uh, if all you do is some infinitesimal change, it's not going to get you out of there. Uh, you need to, to do something that mathematicians call sometimes finite amplitude perturbation. Namely, you know, you, you need to make a, a bold move to actually be able to get out of there. And um, and, and, and this book, Being Wrong, um, you know, discusses more this, this general uh, feeling of, uh, you know, how do we feel, what, what our emotional response is, and so on. Uh, it, it, it works along completely different lines uh, than my book, but uh, I think, you know, it's, it, it complements it in, in, in some nice ways. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm also a fan of being wrong. <clears throat> I agree it's a, a great compliment for brilliant blunders. And I also think it shares some of the sort of eloquent narrative uh, feel of your book. Like our listeners, as you've probably noticed, Mario is a great storyteller and that definitely comes through in Brilliant Blunders as well. So we'll have a link to Brilliant Blunders on our website um, and I encourage you to pick it up. And Mario, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Rationally Speaking. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>